Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is for... Oh, what? That's the worst start I've ever made. This is episode 423. I mean, you're lucky this is a bonus podcast because I've stumbled at the first hurdle. But welcome all the same. This is episode 423 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Uh, Today's guest is Will Sharp, and Will has never done a podcast prior to this, and I'd not seen loads of interviews with him, so I didn't know how it'd be, but I knew I was a big fan of his work, so I was keen to jump on Zoom and and see how it goes. And I said to him off mic, it's one of the most comfortable conversations I've ever had. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It flowed so naturally. I'm such a fan of this lad's work and his outlook, even more so now talking to him. There's a really nice moment that there's a question asked at the beginning that gets referenced at the end, and it really sums up how this chat was. So I'll leave you to to hear all of that. But um, as this comes out, Landscapers, I think, has just started or is already up and running and the electrical life of louis wayne is out beginning of of next year so there's loads of stuff to watch if you didn't already watch flowers it's amazing um and gary hadji we talk about a bit i've said numerous times is one of my favorite tv shows of recent years i believe it's on netflix now it was originally on iplayer iplayer or four iplayer now it's on 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 netflix so yeah can't recommend that show enough. That's a perfect little Christmas period or in between Christmas and New Year watch because it's not really like anything else, but I think it's absolutely masterful. Shout out to Joe Barton. Yeah, as I mentioned on Wednesday's episode, this podcast has been nominated for a Pod Bible Award, so it's all listener voted, so I'd really appreciate if you go over there and vote. Um, podbiblemag.com. And there'll be like a page or a banner or something, and you can click and vote for distraction pieces. It's for, it's free to vote as the podcast is free. I'll appreciate you going and doing that. Also, Christmas is coming. Head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com. I got all the merch there. Loads of good merch. Loads from CDs to vinyl. The distraction pieces ten year anniversary vinyl would be a good gift for the Scroobius Pip fan in your life. I, I did a new version of the whole album as a spoken word version. I recorded it in the woods in Vancouver on my own, and then released it as a double white vinyl. So that's all over there. And one of the cool things is any order you make at speechdevelopmentrecords.com, we will plant a tree on your behalf and you'll get the details emailed to you. So yeah, loads of really good stuff going on there. You could head over to Patreon if it's that time of year that you think, you know what, I'd buy Pip an end-of-year drink, then head over to Patreon and just subscribe there. It's like a a dollar or a dollar fifty, but you can tip subscribe for more if you wish. Um, Yeah, and that's everything. Let's get on with the podcast. You've you've already had one this week anyway. You've heard enough from me rambling, but I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Honestly, I've got such admiration for this dude, and that only grew having kind of a face-to-face, albeit over Zoom, conversation with him. So, yeah, this is episode 423 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Mr. Will Sharp. I'm now recording. How are you, sir? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I think you're really, really, really good. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of all that you do. So there's loads I want to talk about. Oh, thank you. But first of all, I do ge- ge- genuinely just want to ch- kind of ch- check in and see how you are. You've got a lot of things coming out at the moment. Obviously, there's a global pandemic, a lot of reasons for stress. How are you? Is everything everything going okay? I think so. Thank you for asking. Yeah, uh, I, we've just had a uh, second baby. Um, How's that? It's amazing. We're just sort of cozying in at home. So I'm all good. I'm happy. Thank you for asking. It has been, a, you know, as for everyone, a slightly surreal couple of years. But I've been very lucky to be busy. Um, yeah. So 
yeah, I'm feeling grateful for all of that, for sure. I love it. And and how do you find the balance of of parenthood and being a writer, a director, a producer, an actor? I can't decide if the fact that you work quite regularly with your partner makes it sound more stressful or less stressful. Um, so, so yeah, how do you find the balance of it all? Well, I guess the, the first thing, you know, you discover is how you have to think ahead yeah. uh, with, you know, how how your years are going to pan out uh, and and uh, work work together to uh, to plan all that. I don't know if I feel like my work and home life quite separate in a way. Right. Uh, like yeah. we don't really talk about workloads when we're at home. And um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much they affect each other, really. It's really good to hear. It kind of means you must have a decent balance and, and grasp it all. It's a strange industry for kind of ignoring at points that there's there's life outside of work. So I think it's important from the sounds of it, you've got that balance right you, you, yourself. Therefore, it's hard to hard to break that. I definitely am grateful. Yeah, to I always feel grounded and alive and you know, <laughs> uh, safe at home which is nice i love that well uh, i do want to talk about both landscapers and the electrical life of louis w- w- wayne as i've thoroughly enjoyed them both but thank you something else i loved was giri hadji and, uh-huh. and 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 your performance was key to that in fact i tweeted about my my love of, of your character and the show and joe barton hit uh-huh. me up because it turns out before I moved into acting and writing, I used to do mu- music. And it turns out w- w- one of my songs was on his pre-show playlist that he gave oh. the, the production and all that kind of thing. So I was I was humbled by that. But how was that to work awesome. on? Because it's such an intricate and beautifully written and woven piece of storytelling. Uh, I loved working on Girihachi. I thought Joe Barton's scripts were really beautiful and inventive and... He had created such kind of fully formed three-dimensional characters and Julian Farino, the director, and Ben Chessel, the second block director, they're, you know, both really generous, you know, wonderful human beings. I felt like I learned a lot from both of them. Um, and also it was just really nice to spend some time with the Japanese cast as well. Because, yeah. um, uh, you know, my mum's Japanese, uh, my dad's English and... I lived in Japan till I was eight. You know, when I'm, when I'm around Japanese friends that basically normally relatives or friends of my mom's or, you know, and this was probably the first time I felt like I was hanging out with peers who were, you yeah. know, of an age, similar age to me with similar interests. Um, and I really like just on a personal level got a lot out of that, uh, as well. Yeah. It was, it's, it's was just such a fun, part to play uh i think joe had put so much so much into rodney um and i felt like i could find a way in with the sort of humorous defense mechanism and the self self-destruction um and it was just a lot of it's a lot of fun <laughs> it, it, it felt like a fun character to play because it felt like you could go so big but it was so rooted in such discomfort i guess as you say it was all defense mechanisms it felt like it'd give you as an actor it gives you that free reign to to go as or to at least try going as outrageous as you want without it feeling farcical at any point or 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 over the top for sure yeah i felt like he i guess ultimately was just quite a kind of vulnerable creature who's constantly like hitting out at the world (laughs) and making every mistake available to him yeah i i felt like um like you say there were certain traps there were ways you could go that might have been a little bit too much but mm-hmm. because i felt like on the page he was so human and there was so much available to use if you like um that to ground him um yeah. that that was helpful and you know and if i did ever go too far i had julian there to sort of rein it in so yeah <laughs> I love that. It, it it must have been a dream kind of script to stumble upon because of the dual nature of it being both based in London and Tokyo, I, I guess. Um, and you were born in London, but then r- r- raised in Tokyo and then came back to, uh, 
to London. How was all of that as as a as a a formative period for you? Because uh, I, I was speaking to Dan Schreiber recently, who was born in Hong Kong, but then moved. But his parents were Australian, and then when he moved to Australia, it was kind of his experience was he ne- he never felt of anywhere as such in hong kong he felt like the australian kid and in australia he certainly didn't relate to australians so how was that as moving there at such a young age and then being of both worlds as such uh, i can definitely relate to that i can't remember i mean we moved to japan when i was a few months old so i can't mm-hmm. remember the first bit and my earliest memories are in japan um and there's like a i guess like a kind of um a level of nostalgia, if you like, that is inaccessible to me in the UK that I get yeah. when I visit Japan. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely, you know, if you're mixed race or have lived around, there's a definitely a degree to which, you know, when I'm here, I kind of look Japanese. I feel quite Japanese um, compared to a lot of my friends. But when I'm in Japan, uh, I feel, I feel British, you know, I feel mm. Western Um and so there is a little bit of that. And I think moving to England, you know, when I was a kid, that was def- that definitely was an adjustment. And I think looking back, it wasn't something that I was conscious of as I was writing it in the first place. But um, in the series Flowers, yeah. I play a character called Shun, who is like, um, you know, a sort of heightened uh, version of like the Japanese comedy characters I grew up watching uh, as a kid and uh, really loved. And I feel like his story uh, in the end maybe was unpacking some of that, <laughs> yeah. um, which I didn't realize until kind of quite near the end. Um, but I love that. Um, I spoke to Stacey Martin on the podcast at one point who who will oh, yeah. come to, to to later but one of the things that I look upon her career with absolute je- jealousy is because of her upbringing having the ability to play kind of an even mix of French roles and English roles does that kind of thing a- a- appeal to you have you got more languages or what's your yeah your outlook there I mean, Stacey is amazing. I so I feel like with rehearsal, I could pass as Japanese, but my, uh, and I guess one of the things about having kids is I've realized I'm not as good at Japanese as I thought I was. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll be like trying to talk to them and they'll realize that I haven't got the vocabulary either. <laughs> uh, and then but I'm about, I'm, I can pass, you know, I think if I rehearsed, I could probably play someone who is Japanese, but I can only pass for like a, a few minutes um in real life and like i had this experience when i was back in japan tokyo working on this play an adaptation of a play with a theater director called hideki nodda uh, and i went out to get some food from an inn um late at night and as i went in the guy said something that i didn't quite catch and i said okay thanks no worries i'll just take a seat and have a look at the menu sat down so i look at the menu someone else came over said the same thing and i was like oh i don't really know and he was like just give me a couple of minutes and i'll and i'll be ready uh and then someone else came over and was like i'm really sorry but the shop is finished and i realized that they'd basically been trying to tell me that they were closed <laughs> but in a slightly fancy way or in a polite way and because i look japanese and feel like short sentences my accent holds up they just yeah. thought i was insane uh it's like someone say really sorry mate we're we're closed closed. yep i'll leave you in a minute no worries i'll just go and uh, have a look at the menu if that's okay (laughs) (laughs) just trying to get rid of you i love that and i I honestly think there's there's nothing that exposes the holes in our own skills quite like trying to teach those skills to someone (laughs) so i can completely see how having kids make you go all right i thought i was on top of that but it turns out (laughs) yeah i can't can't quite explain it um so I guess what was your route into, into I mean, into everything, into writing, directing, acting, producing. You do a, a lot of stuff. What was the route for, of that, of gr- growing up in Japan, then coming over to the UK at like nine or ten, was it? Eight, Around yeah. that age, eight or nine, eight, eight. Um, I don't know why I added eight or nine as if <laughs> as if I couldn't trust you on that. I mean, like, let's call it eight or nine. Let's call it around eight or nine. Um yeah, what was the, the 
the route there, the footlights must have played a big part in that, right? Because it's such a, a a legendary place for giving people that experience on stage and performing and writing and entertaining. For sure. Um, I guess I, I always enjoyed writing stories uh, from a young age. And I think just little by little, I, I started to feel, I guess, in some way... I don't know if confident is the right word because there's always a huge helping of self-doubt, you know, with everything. Um, but started to feel like it was a thing that I could do. Uh, and I guess maybe in a funny way felt free doing it, uh, you know, writing and whether it was staging a story or trying to find a way to film a story. And I guess one of the best things about uh, the footlights that I've always been grateful for is that you, you know, they had these late shows, one hour sketch shows, I guess, but you could do stand up or, or you could do whatever you wanted really, uh, every other week. And so you had an audience to try stuff out in front of regularly. Um, and mm. you sort of taught us, I think, to take risks, uh, and experiment and to, you know, push the envelope because if it didn't go well, you knew that you could try something else again in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and I felt yeah, the like... the fact it's almost a never-ending cycle. It's like, all right, well, that didn't work. On to the next one as such. Exactly, yeah. And so I felt, you know, when I first moved to London and was scrabbling about for open mic nights and things, uh, I felt like that meant that you know, when you've just done, you know, when you're doing a gig to five people who are not into it at all, there's a part of me that's like, it's okay, you know, you'll find you'll find something else tomorrow or the day after. And so I was definitely grateful for that. But I don't know, I, I think it's like, I, I remember like, you know, as a kid, like really probably when I was a kid kid, mm-hmm. I think I wanted to be like, I remember watching J League matches um, and thinking like footballers were the coolest people. Yeah. You know, I probably wanted to be a footballer when I yeah. was a kid kid, but I start to realize as you go up that you're not going to be a footballer. You can't, you can't do it. And there are other people who just can do it. And I, in some way, I guess at some point over time, I started to feel like I could do this. Um, and I can't imagine doing anything else now. And I, I find it almost necessary in a way I, for myself. Like I, I don't know if I would survive without it almost if you know what i mean Com- i completely know what you mean it's really interesting the 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 book ending of that answer of the kind of needing to do it because not really knowing what else to do and kind of backtracking on the suggestion of confidence because it'd be easy to assume that someone that, that does all the things you do is confident but i have that a lot and i the way i kind of describe it is I'm good at ignoring my self-doubt or pushing it aside. It's I, I rarely think I'm confident, but I'm good at going, well, we've got to do it anyway, rather than allowing that self-doubt. It's, there's very rarely a, this will be easy. I'm going to be the best at this. This is it. It's kind of more, we're doing it. Let's just deal with it. We've got to do yeah. it. It is what it is. And also time. I th- I feel like there's a point at which, like, if I tried to paint a picture, you know, every Sunday or whatever, yeah. I think I'd be like, well, I've spent three hours trying to paint this and it's still rubbish. I'm definitely, you know, but it takes time. Like now if I'm sitting at a laptop trying to write something and it doesn't come for two days, but I've shown up and I've tried, I know now I have faith that it will come. And I know yeah. that that's part of the job is just turning up and doing that, doing those hours. Um, so I feel like probably learning that about the time that goes into it as well was a big part of um I guess um, starting to do it for real rather than just as a hobby. I love that. There's an amazing documentary about I've I've gone blank on his name. The guy who did the paint, the wave painting, the infamous wave painting, classic bit of 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 art. Um, and about sixty or seventy, he got huge, and he decided he wasn't that good. And he said that by <laughs> seventy I'll be good, by eighty I'll be great, and by ninety I'll be you know, a master and every brush stroke will be life changing. And he died at like 88. So it's, it, it's that constant striving. <laughs> but one of the things in the documentary, it talked about how painting is 
really an old man's game because it is something you should get better and better at. And it it was a life-changing thing for me because I watched that just as I'd done my first couple of acting jobs. And I had that exact realisation. It's like, oh man, with the music, at some point there's going to be a deterioration. Um, I don't like the idea of being a 50-year-old rapper. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think it's particularly a good look. Whereas with acting, regardless of where I am now, every job I've ever done, I felt I've learned so much and got that bit better. So it's the first job or career I've ever had that I'm genuinely excited about 20 years time, 30 years time, right. and all the, the improvements that could come, the stuff you'd learn, the experiences. So yeah, it's an exciting world for that, right? Definitely. I think you could pull off being a 50-year-old rapper, though, for the record. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very nice of you. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. And also, I guess, like, the balance between, you know, as you get technically better uh, or more experienced and just re- remembering the base instincts that you have for it as well and yeah. being open to that, the flow of that, I guess, is a thing as well. It, it, it- it can be a case of meeting the right people as well, right, to to bring the most out of that flow and to give confidence in that flow. When did did you and, and Tom Kingsley start working together? Because you've done numerous bits over the years, right? And it's kind of, I think it can be really inspirational to find those, to find your people as such that can, Definitely. can work with. So to, Tom and I met at university mm-hmm. um, and we kind of stayed in touch and... Um, we co-directed a micro-budget film called Black Pond together. And- Which got screened at the Prince Charles Cinema, right? Which, in my opinion, is the greatest cinema in London. I used to do a film the night Prince there, Charles. and it was just... it's Yeah, it's iconic. So what a great place to have your film on. Yeah, I mean, the story behind... that was all The whole story of that was us just trying to work it out as we went along, I guess. And I think the reason why we we hired out the Prince Charles and made the made the money back in the end was because I think we found out that there's some technicality where if your movie is screened on the same screen five days in a row or something or more than five days in a row, the critics have an obligation to review it. Right. Uh, and so it's, and so it's a, we've were worried, obviously it's a tiny film. We made it for like 20 grand um, that it would just, get ignored but that was our way of making sure that it got reviewed by someone in some way but i think tom and i i guess like i felt like you know we made a short film together called cockroach which i was in casualty at the time uh working as an actor um and he was working as a as a runner at a production company called blink who you know uh, make commercials and music videos and we borrowed a sort of prosumer level camera from blink uh went and made the short film and then somebody quite high up at blink saw the short film enjoyed it said what if we gave you 50 grand to make a feature film and we were super excited about that i started to write the script we started to you know think about casting and uh how to how to make it i guess um then this guy came back from his sabbatical and was like i've changed my mind i'm not going to give you 50 grand that's mad but by that point we were already so ready um, yeah. to do it that we were like well should we just try and find whatever money we can you know writing to companies we'd work for writing letters to you know everyone we could think of and then we made it and I think you know with Tom we learned a lot from each other but we were also I guess we both wanted it um, as much as each other and would motivate each other and kind of you know taking the time out to make a f- feature film in that way it's quite a frightening thing to do. And I think if one person was losing faith, the other would always sort of keep it. And we sort of kept each other going through all that. And yeah, so yeah, for sure. I think the people around you are hugely important. And, you know, since then I've been really lucky to work with, you know, lots of amazing uh, heads of department, DPs, production designers, producers, you know, everyone that you collaborate with i mean it's such a it's such a like extraordinarily collaborative process to make anything for screen a hundred percent and i think it's why people end up working with a lot of the same people over and over again because finding those people that you can collaborate with in that way and and even just exist with for that period of time because it's not as easy as it's 
it sounds. I've had a few different things that I've worked with so many of the same people on and from the outside you look at it and go oh it's everyone just working with their mates and and this and that it's like no I wasn't any of their mates at the start but we've found that we can exist on set together exist off set together and absolutely and that's such an important part of the collaboration right regardless of what's happening on screen I know there's the kind of the romanticizing of some films that have been in the nightmare to make and everyone's hated each other and it's been hell but then it's this beautiful work of art that's not sustainable in life, <laughs> sadly. No. And you don't want to be doing that all the time, at least. No, and I, I'm, I don't know if it's like a sort of a slightly hippie-ish point of view, but I really feel like, I guess you could probably make something that is successful and everyone have had a horrible time and conducted themselves very poorly. But I, I sort of feel like the one thing you can't do is make something that has heart yeah. without heart. And yeah. I, re- I really feel like when you know, cast and crew are working together and everybody is like, you know, builds a sort of family uh, and is a team. I sort of feel like you can feel that on the screen uh, in the finished product. So I'm a big believer in, I almost feel like that's the main thing you're doing as a director, you know, apart from just solving a hundred problems a day with your peers uh, as quickly as you can is trying to, create an environment in which people feel safe enough and trust each other enough for remarkable things to happen. And, you know, we're there to record it, but occasionally like the best stuff, I think it's, it's an actual remarkable event that has taken place. There's like an actual moment of connection or a piece of magic that you're trying to sort of create the right space for that to be able to make itself known. Does that make sense? Yeah. A hundred percent. It's it's it, it's why I think the seconds and thirds are such key parts of any production team because they really set the mood and the tone, and and they can be the first people you're encountering going on to set. And it, there's so many roles like that that are so underrated. Hair and makeup as an easy example because you're going to be there every day. If the vibe in in that little room isn't great, definitely it's going to be a tough few months. Whereas if you're instantly in there and everyone's picking up and connecting and and feeling it it makes it makes a huge difference yeah i hope i mean my hope is that audiences at home are starting to get a sense of that you know how just how many talented skilled people have contributed to this product that they're engaging you know um it is kind of amazing well i mean i don't want to skip past flowers as such but there's kind of I really want to get onto the current projects, but okay. as a cast, like we were speaking of teams of people to work with, and just on screen, Julian Barrett, Sophia Di Martino, obviously, previous podcast guests, Georgina Campbell and Desiree Atkavan, but that was, but also Olivia Coleman, who is in both of these recent projects. So, was that the first time you worked together? Was that the first time you you made a connection there? How was that? Yeah, that was my first time working with Olivia uh, and managed to get the pilot script to her through Jane Featherstone. Uh, it was um, a kudos production um, at that point, And Jane was working with Olivia on Broadchurch, I think. Um, and, you know, as with all projects, as you're cast it, you, you have your dream wish list. Um, and... Like many people, you know, I was a big fan of Olivia's work already. I loved Peep Show, loved her in Peep Show. And I think it was seeing her performance in Tyrannosaur, mm-hmm. where, which was, you know, much more dramatic, I guess, and sort of really yeah. raw. And I guess from that point on, I just felt like, I was, oh, I see. So she could basically do anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it felt like you got her at the point that the industry knew she's probably the best, but, but the public didn't quite know yet. So it's that perfect right. that perfect middle point of making someone accessible <laughs> and achievable because it's like it's pre Oscars and stuff but very much as I said Tyrannosaur was that that one her and Peter in that are just extraordinary it's next level yeah yeah and yeah I guess I I mean I just I I I guess on every, like on every project you you have these moments together where uh things start to click and you start to develop that mutual trust and I felt like I had a few of those with Olivia on Flowers. And I mean, that was my first, if you like, proper 
grown-up job where i'm yeah. sort of given permission to make something yeah uh by other people and it was a really like formative and just a beautiful time i sort of sometimes find it quite hard to talk about it without getting emotional about it but yeah i, I guess i just felt very lucky and and i don't know like there's something about writing which can be at times like quite a sort of lonely exercise if you like it's a lot of time spent on your own and yes you're hanging out with these fictional or fictionalized characters and you're spending time in this other place but that was probably my first time because on black pond you know tom and i were we were the catering department we were the transport we were the casting we were everything and this was the first and i remember on the first day of the pilot showing up uh and kind of getting into trouble because I kept trying to carry the lens cases everywhere. And they were kind of like, I know you're just trying to help, but it's actually quite confusing. So just leave it. Because like, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe there were so many people here to help us make this. And, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't a huge budget. But, and little by little, that just became a, a really close uh, group, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, we're all friends now, I think, uh, I hope. <laughs> and I just felt really... I couldn't believe it that uh, this very personal story, I guess, uh, was going to be told by all these different amazing people. And I really felt great. I just felt grateful for it, I I think is the the best way of saying it. I love it. I love it. And please go onto your IMDb and add yourself on the Black Pond listing for catering, um, (laughs) runner, all of these different things. Just because it's already an overwhelming IMDb with the amount of different things you do, but it'll really confuse people to go, catering as well. Wow. (laughs) I mean, fair play to the lads. (laughs) But um, so on, on Landscapers, we've spoken of... Olivia, you already knew Olivia Coleman at this point, and she's gone on to even more amazing performances. But her co-star as such is David Thewlis, who his performance in Naked is basically studied by all (laughs) actors or just acting nerds. Um, How was that to put those two together and to have them kind of under your, your, your responsibility, I guess, under your rule? Not wrong. W- Can't think of the word. <laughs> <laughs> it. W- I mean, I just felt like they're both super down to earth and, you know, always prepared and w- just very generous and, and uh, wonderful to work with. So it was very easy in a way. And I felt like obviously they're both, as you say, individually um, phenomenal, versatile performers. But I also felt like they had something really special together. It felt like they had a real ease um, and uh, that chemistry was, you know, that's a big part of the show, I think. And it's a big part of um, maybe what lures the audience into a sense of feeling like they know things that they don't know, you know, and a lot of it, Landscapers is about, I guess, presenting to you the same truth in different ways or different versions of the same truth and, challenging you as an audience to sort of work out what you really do believe in and what you're starting to doubt. And I guess the fact that they're both so kind of deft and light touch and nimble, like emotionally nimble and can navigate the light and the dark and be charming one second. And then the next minute seem really villainous and like, there's a lot of um, darkness there. Like all of that versatility from them both I think was very helpful in, you know, when you're trying to dial certain things up or down in the telling of the story. But yeah, no, we shot, you know, we shot through the pandemic and had a brilliant COVID team. I was like amazed that we never had to shut down. Um, And, you know, what that meant was that a lot of the time you're masked up, visored up. And so it's different. It's different. Like you you still make it work. It's different to being uh, or what, you know, uh, being on a set can be like but I felt like there was still a sense of connection and that togetherness on the set of landscapers as well I think I'm only just I'm only talking about COVID because I'm thinking back to the time and I'm remembering talking with Olivia and David with a visor yeah, on but that's it's really interesting it's, 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 it's really interesting though because I, I was working on 
in in Canada during the the pandemic, and we were the only only production that that didn't get sh- shut down. I was I was in a show for NBC, and uh-huh. one of the things I found interesting was when we could work that division into it. So okay. so kind of there were times that even with because as as you'll know, when you're all visored up and masked up, and there's so much precaution it's kind of easier to just go into your trailer a lot of the time. Right. So what I found was those who were making the effort to not do that were like, so I'm not articulating this well, but it it, it, it works in landscapers because you've got the police and mm-hmm. you've got the, the, the accused. So a slight division there is kind of a good thing, a slight discomfort and unfamiliarity there is kind of a good thing. And it's, it's something I found that we had a lot on debris in in Canada was I kind of hung about with all the people in my villainous gang and right. the the good guys kind of all hung about together and it worked qu- qu- quite nicely when we're on set we're excited to see each other and engage but still there was that slight distance that I, see. That I think you know allowed that t- to come through nicely so it can be that's interesting it can be interesting and um, but so for people who haven't seen it, it yet or when this comes out it revolves around a bizarre true story of the 1998 murders of not in nottinghamshire residents william and patricia Wichley. what drew you to this story and how like what made it j- jump out because the way it's told is wonderful because it's a case of you can't simply believe what you see as you kind of said you're presented with various variations of the truth repeatedly. So it puts a lot on the viewer to, to make their own mind up, which is kind of what happens when we read news stories, right? It's not all there. You can't see all of it. You're getting given a version from this newspaper that might be be different in this newspaper or in this blog or in this YouTuber doing a video about it, you know? So yeah. How did it all come about? Um, So I was sent the uh, project by sister, um, and read the original scripts by Ed uh, Sinclair, who's uh, you know married to Olivia, yep. and immediately liked um, how sort of empathetic these scripts were, and I felt like Ed was trying to really get under the skin of Chris and Susan, and um, it was as much about their relationship as it was about the crime. Mm-hmm. There were also these kind of formal ideas uh, within the scripts, which I felt like were exciting uh, and was part of what attracted me to the project Um, and also I guess one of the biggest challenges you know how do we stop this from becoming a kind of Mm. free-for-all if you like and so some of the earliest work uh, that we did together on the scripts I think was trying to streamline those ideas and bring the audience with us on this kind of psychological journey if you like Um, and I think in the end the decisions were always, you know, always needed to tie back to Susan in particular, Susan's psychology, uh, and I guess the story, the emotional through line of the show. Um, and so sometimes, you know, like if Susan and Chris are presenting versions of, you know, what happened on the night of a crime to the police in a police interview, the way we dramatize that is to present it in a, in a slightly kind of theatrical constructed way. Uh, and, you know, with Christina Kasai, the production designer, Eric Wilson, the DP, we started to talk a lot about using deep blacks to sort of signify the bits of the story that are missing. Yeah. You know, yeah, so it's like, well, if that detail's not there visually, how does that make me feel about the details that I am seeing? Um, and I guess to share in that vulnerability with the characters that it's like, well, I'm telling this story and I'm trying to sell it to the police, but does it feel like they're buying it? Does it feel like this holds up? Um, and in other instances, it might be like a memory, um, of when Chris and Susan were first getting together. And, you know, one of the details of this case that is often picked out by the media is how Susan in particular was really fascinated by like classic hollywood films and especially mm-hmm. old westerns yeah and they were both like avid collectors of like old western paraf- like memorabilia yeah and so all of that is you know infused into the show and we play some of the flashbacks of of her remembering how it felt 
to get back to in a slightly romanticized kind of cinematic way and eric you know played with these this sort of like slightly old-fashioned uh classic front-lit heightened sort of uh romantic lead iconic kind of close-up uh yeah. which was fun to play with and you know talking with olivia and david in rehearsal about how okay so when you're the romanticized version of yourself um you're you are the romantic hero that susan sees you as does that change your posture does it change how you speak um and so i mean all of, i guess all of this was trying to sort of uh create these different headspaces if you like but making sure that they all sat within a cohesive whole you know uh yeah. the world of lands- landscapers i guess but that was definitely one of the most exciting things about it for sure i love it because it it all speaking about it here and even presented on screen it all feels quite grand and almost abstract but it really tapped in for me with the realities of our minds and how we remember things and 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 what we we don't remember and how we you know the fact that our memories are actually memories of the first time we remembered it as such, and, <laughs> and, and 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 things like that. We actually just repeat that rather than remember the actual moment itself. And yeah, I think it becomes a fascinating woven th- thing. Um, and I think that's perfect for true crime, right? Because that's perfect. Because again, you'll think, oh, this person. It turns out that this person was lying. It's like they right. might not have been. They might not have been lying. Or it turns out that this person was doing this or that. Again, I'm not giving any spoilers there because I've not seen the the, full, the final episode yet. I've seen the first okay. uh, th- three. So, But just in general, that thing of that might, it, you know, uh, uh, there is no truth. There is only perspective, like that kind of outlook. Yeah. And I think that comes across a lot in it with, with how we connect to things. That's. Uh, I'm really pleased that you got that from it. Um, and I think like... One of the earliest things that we talked about, you know, when discussing this, like I, the theme of truth was uh, that thing where you have remembered an event a certain way and you're convinced that it took place in a, you know, it was in a certain place with certain people present at a certain time and somebody else has got completely different memory of the same event and how sort of that uncanny feeling of you're so sure about, you know, the details of something, yeah. but you might have got it completely wrong. Cause like you say, it's all psychological in the end, I guess. And it's all perspective, isn't it? One of the songs that that, that Joe Barton ended up hitting me up about, because we buddied up after that, because it's always uh-huh. nice if you're gushing over someone's work to have them then gushing over your work. So, oh, aren't we artists? But it was <laughs> a song I had called Broken Promise, and the kind of refrain of that is, is a lie really a lie if you mean it at the time? Because I was obsessing over thinking back to past relationships when I've 100% meant it when I've said, I'll always be there for this person or I'll do this or that. But then we've grown apart or, again, you realise that you've projected a character that that wasn't really there and that's who you were professing these feelings to. Does that make you a a liar? Well, it kind of doesn't because when you were saying that, you 100% meant that. But yeah everyone in the situation has changed so i love stuff that kind of explores that and looks at at the realities of these things rather than the black and white here's the goody and the baddie or the liar and the truth seeker that that rings yeah that's absolutely on point i think that's really interesting yeah well um uh, we've spoken about working with people like david julis and, and olivia coleman who are these amazing experience um and i kind of I didn't need to ask because of how you spoke earlier of the role of a director that uh, I was going to ask, how is it as a younger director kind of working with these people? But you've made it clear that it's about a collaboration and working in a scene. So what I did want to ask was someone that jumped up on my screen unexpectedly is a friend of mine and someone I know is new to acting because he's been, I've I've been recommending some, 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 some books and stuff, but jason williamson of of sleaford mods um yeah it's all based in nottingham perfect person to be playing a guy who, who lives in in nottingham as one of the neighbors is there any difference in your approach when someone is you know a screen icon and when they're you know a new raw talent or do you kind of just play it as as you see it on the day no, I, the short answer is no, or at least I hope not. I try to treat everybody exactly the same. Uh, you know, I love working. Yeah, you know, I love Jason's music. Um, and like my other half is from 
uh, Nottingham and has family in Mansfield originally. And so yeah. I sort of felt like I had a sense of the romance of that and like the opening shots of the series in a way are trying to present Nottingham in like as heightened and romantic a way as you might shoot city like Paris, you know, and yeah. set it up as a city that is worthy of a big story, you know, like that has yeah. real depth. Um, and I really wanted that to be reflected in the casting as well. And just, I was, I wonder if someone like Jason would be up for it. And he was, and he was very funny and very game and super humble. I think, you know, the, the people who knew who he was and there were the other people who didn't know who he was. And I think the people who didn't know who he was would have had no idea that he's like a kind of punk yeah. icon. You know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Just, you know, he's like modest. That's what I thought. Self. He just, he, he came um, up on screen. I was like, oh, hang on. It was, <laughs> okay. I love it. No, he was brilliant to work with. He was, he was brilliant to work with. He was really funny. My hope is just, is that he sort of helps to sell the Midlands, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and do it and do it with a bit of swagger as well. Completely. I completely <laughs> agree. Well, I mean, I need to get on to the electrical life of, of Louis Wayne, because I adored that as well. Um, it caused a lot of tears in my household, but you know, in a good way. So um, how was that? How, how, what made you, what drew you towards that story as writer and director? And also what, has drawn you towards directing and writing and whatnot and not putting yourself in front of camera as well? Because obviously in Flowers, you were kind of, you were, as as said, from your previous experience of being catering, everything else you (laughs) did, you put yourself in numerous guises, but both of these, you're, you're very much the director or writer and director in, in this case. I guess, you know, as with landscapers, there, there were both projects that I was sent and, you know, I read, I read them and I read about them and I just couldn't get them out of my head, I guess. Yeah. You found yourself waking up in the middle of the night and thinking about, thinking about it. Um, and so I guess that's why you end up in a situation where, you know, you've got, you just feel impelled to pitch on it and to, and to try and be a part of it in some way. And I, I guess with Louis Wayne, I hadn't, heard of him uh, but I felt like I recognized his pictures mm-hmm. uh, I felt like I'd seen them somewhere before um, and I was probably initially fascinated by this the gap if you like between these fun innocent tableau of cats you know mm-hmm. anthropomorphized cats doing silly things like play badminton and snooker yeah. or whatever and then occasionally like some detail or a little inscription that betrayed an underlying fragility or vulnerability. And I also just really loved his fame, probably best known now in the art world for his kaleidoscopic cats, which mm-hmm. are like these um, pretty abstract, almost kind of fractal patterns, almost like magic eye of a cat face. Or yeah. something. <laughs> but that were done at the time, kind of seen as when his career was over as such, or when he'd, he'd lost his talent or his mind indeed kind of thing. And it's like, right, no, only exactly. l- looking back did people kind of go no that was the good shit you yeah all, all that stuff before that was the workout this is yeah exactly yeah and i don't know i guess like this wasn't by design but both projects are about real people they're both true stories mm-hmm. and they're both about people who i guess maybe had a slightly unusual perspective on the world and who sort of sit slightly at odds with normal society and in both cases i think i felt like I I just really wanted to try to understand these people yeah. and to try and get in their heads and to try and, you know, knowing that I would never completely be able to do that and that there would always be a degree of like inevitable subjectivity, you know, yeah. uh, just wanting to get in their headspace. And I guess in the case of Louis Wayne, he's somebody who probably a lot of people have come across his work without realising and just thinking like... Uh, not only do I want people to have heard of this guy, I also want them to kind of get him. I had, um, I had exactly the same as you were saying of almost every picture that came up. I felt, oh, I, I think I've seen, I've seen that. Yeah. I know that, I know that. But then there's yeah. so many of them. Like, I can't have seen all of them. I'm not an expert on Louis Wayne. I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't aware of his name until this. So yeah, strangely familiar. For sure. But yeah, I mean, that was an extra, you know, that was uh that was a big step up for me, that project. Um, and again, working with, 
incredible uh, cast, incredible crew, and working very closely with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch um, and uh, Claire Foy and, uh, you know, Eric Wilson, the DP. Uh, he, I met him first on Louis Wayne and then he came with me to Landscapers. Um, and yeah, it was... Um, it was a it was a ride. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a hell of a cast, and I've noted some. You mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch and Claire Foy, Olivia Coleman, Toby Jones, Stacey Martin, Haley Squires, Asim Chowdhury, Richard Ioadi, Jamie Demetriou, um, and I'm leaving loads off there. So, how is it kind of, or how how daunting is it? to have such a a cast of talent that you have to to weave this story together with i guess like you know you sit you sit down with dixie chasse the casting director and the producer and you have to think about like who would you really who can you really imagine playing this role and in the case of louis wayne you know we're covering most of his life and he was somebody who would find himself in these kind of remarkable situations where he's suddenly in front of like quite a famous uh opera composer or like the head of a newspaper whatever and so it often felt like you know for example the casting of nick cave as hg wells yeah that's a moment where we wanted the audience to understand in a very short space of time that this was a big deal for him and for other people that hg wells was involved in um right in in this in this moment in the story um and i guess like i've just super weirded out always when somebody is up for it uh and it's game and i'm like why are they sure like <laughs> or, or one um, that, that jumped out at me barely even in it but simon munnery who i'm a huge fan of him as a as a comedian and as a performer and just kind of briefly popped up in a scene it's like again literally everywhere you look in this film there's there's amazing people I love Simon Munnery and he was, um, you know, he, he had a small part in the last episode of Flowers as well. Yeah. I just love his comment. I guess all these people are just people who I think are amazing and bring their own sort of worlds with them. Yeah. And that I just, you know, love their work. I, I get, I think the short answer is it's scary before you're working. Like the idea of it is quite scary. Yeah. But then when you're on set or in rehearsal, like everybody is always, very gracious and human and also you're just you just get straight in the zone of of doing the work so in the moment it's not daunting but probably the idea of it in the lead up to doing the work is a little bit is a little bit scary i've I've held off one name i want to ask about and 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 to be clear there's a reason i'm framing this all on how do you feel because i think it's always the most bullshit question to be how was it working with this guy because no one has right. ever answered going oh they were an absolute prick it was a nightmare <laughs> i never want to it's always lovely so i'm not asking that but there's a scene with a, a, a taika waititi and as soon as he came on screen it jumped out that he's kind of almost the pinnacle of he's an actor he's also a writer he's also a director he's also a producer so how was it directing someone who you're already aware knows what they're doing on that side of the camera as well i mean he was you know really brilliant and like like probably two of the most fun days of filming were with taika and i guess like he he has a self-awareness and he knows you have like you say because he's been on both sides of he he knows the drill and was very open and respectful and kind of hungry for feedback but also like you know, happy to throw in ideas and try stuff out. So yeah, again, I, f- I feel like that was probably something where, you know, I was really excited that he was up for it. And yeah. in the lead up to those days, I was probably nervous about the prospect of meeting him and working with him. But um, the reality of it was we were just getting, we're just shooting the scenes, you know, you just get in the flow and get yeah. on with it. <laughs> well, the, the the one name I've, I've, I've not mentioned so far, and I wanted to leave it until towards the end, because it's someone you've worked with, with a lot but it's Daniel Rigby who I think is fantastic in so many things and sometimes seemingly ignored in tiny roles and sometimes as as the lead when did you two first come together and what has caused you to kind of work because Daniel's also in 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 landscapers was he it was in flowers as as well right so yeah he's come along 
with you a lot yeah he's part of the family in yeah. you know flowers and that was when we first met was on was on flowers but we've become very close friends since then he's extraordinarily funny and uh you know as you say arguably underrated uh, as yeah. an actor in spite of the fact that he's won a BAFTA also would like to say he's written a very funny audio book called Isaac Steele and the Forever Man which you can listen to on Audible amazing um, but yeah, he's, uh, I don't know, he's just somebody who is so instinctively, hit, like, he has funny bones, but also I think he's got soul, like like all my favourite people to collaborate with, he's got soul and he he's skillful, he's a skillful dramatic actor and, you know, as with many of these people I've been lucky to meet and work with, I would always, like, happily call on on Danny uh, yeah. to, you know, work with him. I think, sure. I, th- I think sometimes the, the openness and comfort you need to be a good comedy actor to go to those ridiculous and ludicrous places really can inform dramatic acting hugely because that openness is already there and that comfort is already there and there isn't the discomfort in, in pushing it to, you know, extreme levels or whatever. And he, he, he always feels like those performances could go either way and he'd be perfectly comfortable. For sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess it's like a massive generalisation, isn't it? But I sort of sometimes feel like maybe comedic actors are more often also good at dramatic acting yeah. than dramatic actors. People who are first and foremost are at being funny. But yeah. I mean, what am I basing that on? Just like <laughs> sort of the vaguest sense. <laughs> like, I literally was about... <laughs> To name a dramatic actor I've not enjoyed in comedy, and then I held right. back out of professionalism. <laughs> there, what am I basing that on? Well, you're clearly basing it. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say that. Um, Maybe it's because like when you're being funny or already vulnerable, you're just framing it in a different way, and so it's like, well, what if you took away that part of it? Then you're you're still vulnerable. I think I it's, it's um, 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 a, 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 a mate of mine f- from the spoken word scene, Polar Bear. He said that when he had kids, it really changed his approach to being uncomfortable or, or his exp- his relationship with being uncomfortable in performance because he's like because it all goes out the window you lose any any hope of being the cool guy it's like no right. you, you're a fool you're a clown to this child and you'll do anything to make them laugh or to entertain them or whatever else and i think that works with comedy as well if you've already gone that thing of going right i can't go up there and try and be cool because v- v- there's very few comedians playing it cool as such because it's not a funny thing to watch <laughs> so if you've if you've already abandoned that then that can really help in 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 drama i feel because you're not thinking yeah but how am i coming across and how's this being perceived you're just going here's what i have to do let's let's deal with it after the take that's funny i like that yeah i guess like people say as well don't they that you know sometimes people think acting or performing is about being beautiful and actually, it's not about that. It's about being ugly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and there's something about if you're if you feel like that anyway, it's the shorter step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's perfectly put. Well, I'll I'll wrap things up and let you get back to your 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 newly extended family life. Um, what's ahead? I guess is the question. There's already you've got two amazing projects as this comes out either about to come out or just out you've also just had a new child you've when you're looking at new projects you're probably looking at acting projects writing projects and directing projects have you any idea what's ahead or is it all just too confusing for you it is a little i mean you started this podcast by asking me how i was and i didn't really know how to answer it and i and i am really happy and grateful for everything but it has to be honest with you been quite a lot these mm-hmm. last two years yeah. um you know this is our second kids two big projects sofa's had a big project as well and the pandemic which everyone has been through together we spent quite a lot of time in america uh during lockdown and and i haven't really had the opportunity to properly stop mm. um and so i think the first thing that i know i want to do is just to be home and just to pause uh, and be with my family for a bit. And then as with, you know, as it's always been, I think whatever projects feel the most right will float to the surface at the right time. And I'll get to a point where I can't put it down. I can't stop thinking about it. And 
a certain amount of it is just practically working out when those things can be done. But I don't really know. I've never had a plan and still don't really. I'm just kind of like at, at a certain point, something happens and you become obsessed with a particular idea. There are irons in the fire, but um, a, a couple of them I haven't revisited for quite a long time. So, you know, we'll see. It's 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 that it's those moments of steel that can allow you to kind of figure out what what the priorities are, I guess. So um yeah, that's been amazing, man. I'll let you get back to um your family and your life and hopefully some moments of steel over this period. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really fun talking with you. listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Will Sharp. As said, Landscapers is amazing. You heard us talk about it. You you could hear how blown away I've been by it. Same goes for The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. And Geary Hadji is one of my favourite shows of all times. I can't push that enough as as one of your Christmas binges or, or festive period binges. That's it. I'll see you next week where we'll have two more episodes. There's two episodes every week for you at Christmas. Basically, I realised a lot of podcasts close in December. So I'm going to help you all out and fill those gaps in travel or work or exercise or whatever it is with some amazing guests. So, yeah, I'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. And go to podbarblemag.com and vote for Distraction Pieces. Nice one. Bye.